Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And I'm Aaron Crocker. And this is... Murder Coaster. Today, we bring you the tale of a doomsday cult that believed in zombies, demons, and devils at war with angels and beings of light. A tale of Armageddon and preparing for the end of the world. We crack the surface of these delusions and divine visions, and you will find a story of greed, sex, and power that led to murder most heinous. That's right, dear listeners. Today we delve into the beliefs, visions, and murders of the doomsday mother, the cult mom, the sexual goddess returned to Earth to bring in the apocalypse, Lori Vallow Daybell. And you may have noticed a third voice in our introduction there. That was my good friend, author and filmmaker, Aaron Crocker, who was actually once a member of a religious cult. So he's going to go over the case with us today, and at the end, offer some of his thoughts on the nature of cults and how they can be so powerful. Thank you so much for joining us, Aaron. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right, let's begin. We can't really get into today's case without discussing the idea of divine revelation, and in particular, how divine revelation relates to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or as they're often referred to, the Mormons, because of the name of their holy book, the Book of Mormon. Revelations from God have always been a big part of the Latter-day Saints, or LDS. The church itself was founded on the revelations of Joseph Smith, and revelation, or the whispering of the Holy Spirit, is considered the foundation of the church. To this day, the church encourages divine revelation and states that revelation from God is available to all those who earnestly seek it. Because of this, often true crime involving Mormons has a distinctly bizarre aspect as the perpetrators claim they were told by God himself to commit their crimes. This is by far not the first case where brutal murders, including that of a child, were attributed to a revelation from God. Most famously, in 1984, 15-month-old toddler Erica Lafferty, as well as her 24-year-old mother Brenda, had their throats slashed in their apartment in American Fork, Utah. They'd been murdered by two brothers of Erica's husband, Alan, after they'd slipped into the far fringes of Mormon subculture. Because of revelations from God, the two brothers had stopped paying taxes, started practicing polygamy, took on racist spiritual views, and were told by God that their brother's progressive college-educated wife needed to be eliminated because she wasn't subservient or submissive enough and was setting a bad example. John Krakauer discusses it in his excellent book, Under the Banner of Heaven, which also brought the crimes of polygamist Warren Jeffries to the attention of the FBI. It's basically a book about Mormon true crime 
but also a history of the church. Really, really fascinating. Um, that aspect of it was made into a television series, too, on Hulu, which I really loved. It's filmed in a very dark and creepy manner, very spooky and disturbing stuff. And speaking of spooky and disturbing, let's get into the life, times, and crimes of Lori Vallow Daybell. Let's do it. Lori Vallow, the doomsday mom, was born Lori Noreen Cox on June 26, 1973, in San Bernardino, California, to parents Janice and Barry. She has two older brothers, Adam and Alex, and a younger sister named Summer. Lori was raised in the LDS church, and even as a young child was obsessed with religion. At just eight, she and her father would have long, intricate discussions about Mormon beliefs. It appears Lori's father, Barry, had some strong beliefs himself. There's a strong anti-authority element to Mormonism, and Barry certainly had it. He wrote an entire book of anti-government views and considered the IRS to be a rogue agency and thought taxes were unlawful. The family spent decades fighting the IRS and racked up over $300,000 in back taxes. Lori married her high school boyfriend, Nelson Yanes, in 1992 at just 19 years old, but would be divorced within a year. Technically, the LDS sees marriage as eternal. They call it being sealed. But they recognize divorce as, quote, an unfortunately necessary evil, end quote. So Lori isn't afraid to break with church doctrine when it suits her, obviously. And at 22, she marries William Lagioya in Travis County, Texas, on October 22nd, 1995. They go on to have a son named Colby, but divorce in February 1998. She's starting to tear through them. That's an understatement. <laughs> and just a few years later, in 2001, she marries Joseph Anthony Ryan Jr., who legally adopts Colby. They have a daughter named Tylee, who was born in 2002. They appear to be a happy, well-off family. Lori enters the Mrs. Texas beauty pageant, where she says cryptically, quote, being a good mom is very important to me, and a good wife, and a good worker, and being all those things together is not easy. So I'm basically a ticking time bomb, end quote. Yeah, telling beauty pageant judges you're a ticking time bomb seems like a bold move to me. Now. One of those weird coincidences that happens that can really steer people into delusions and insanity. She had a vision from God that she was going to be on the Wheel of Fortune. So she applies to get on the show and actually gets picked and appears on the show, which makes her think she's some kind of holy figure or something. You know, she had a vision, a prophecy, and it came true, even if it was just being on the Wheel of Fortune, but it's not like she won the show or anything. But life at home is not all sugar and sunshine. Lori's husband, Joseph Ryan Jr., is becoming crueler and crueler to Kobe, her son from her second marriage. He hits him, talks in a demeaning manner. Then Kobe comes to his mother with a terrible secret. Joseph has been sexually molesting him. So Lori immediately takes Tylee and Kobe and leaves Joseph. She's filled with simmering rage over what has happened. And I mean, who could blame her? It's awful and disgusting. 
Lori says she was planning on murdering him. She claims she went to her bishop and said, I'm either going to kill my husband or completely devote myself to the temple. The bishop talks her into devoting her life to the temple. But it doesn't end there. You remember Lori had a brother named Alex, and apparently they were very close. So close, in fact, that Alex's ex-wife, Debbie, says the relationship between the brother and sister was inappropriate. She says that he'd constantly call her hot and sexualize her. She furthermore states that Lori would reciprocate and the two sometimes simulated sex acts right in front of the whole damn family, which is, you know, just creepy as hell. But as we'll see, this weird relationship between brother and sister gets pushed to crazy limits, pushed into mind-bending religious beliefs and murder. But we'll get into that soon enough. Well, Alex was deeply upset over what happened to his nephew, Kobe. And in 2007, Alex confronts Joseph about the molestation accusations. And Alex ends up tasering him right between the legs. He's arrested for the incident. Alex is an interesting character, to say the least, and will be one of the main players in the events that unfold. At that time, Alex was actually an amateur stand-up comedian and incorporated this story into his act. You can find footage of Alex on stage saying how he found out his brother-in-law was a pedophile and tased him in the balls, thinking he'd get an award for being a hero, but instead got probation. And I don't know, there's a lot of edgy stuff in comedy, especially these days, but this incident... It just doesn't seem funny to me. No, and interestingly, just a short time later on April 3rd, Joseph Ryan is found dead. No foul play is suspected, and his death is listed as a heart attack. But it's one of the many strange deaths that seem to occur wherever Lori goes. Lori is listed as next of kin and notified, but she doesn't tell any of his relatives, does nothing at all, and no one claims the body for five weeks. Then Lori meets Leland Anthony Vallow, or Charles, as he's known. And after a whirlwind romance, they're soon married. Lori and Charles marry on February 24th, 2006, in Las Vegas, Nevada. Charles Vallow was a lifelong Catholic, but because of his deep love for his blushing bride, Lori, he converts to Mormonism. This is no easy thing either, for it involved giving up alcohol, and apparently he'd been quite the drinker. But he does it happily, out of love, impressing Lori's family with his newfound sobriety and dedication to the church. And did we mention he's rich? Which Lori definitely loved, and he had two older sons from a former marriage, Nicholas and Zachary. In 2013, they adopt his sister's infant grandson, Joshua Jackson Fallow or JJ, when his mother is unable to care for him. JJ is autistic, and Lori dedicates herself to him, body and soul. Tylee and JJ also form a very tight bond. She dotes on him and often states that he's her child. Everyone says what a dedicated and caring mother Lori was during this time period. Portrait of a good Mormon wife and mother. But she was beginning to show signs of fanaticism. Mormons are encouraged by their leaders to hang up pictures of temples in their homes, 
particularly the Salt Lake Temple. Pictures of temples are said to ward off the devil and inspire followers to be more godly. But Lori takes it to the next level. She's hanging pictures of temples everywhere, in every room, plastering the walls with pictures of temples. There's just pictures of temples everywhere. It's becoming an obsession. So Mormons consider a temple, which is usually a huge medieval castle-looking building, to be the house of God, much different from an LDS church or meeting house, which are used for weekly worship. Temples are fundamental to the Mormon religion. It was in 1832 that founder Joseph Smith had a revelation from God that they should start building temples. The LDS has 315 temples, and seven other branches have temples as well. The Community of Christ has two. The Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has one, and that's that polygamous group that was run by Warren Jeffries, who is currently serving a life sentence in prison for two counts of sexual assault on a minor. And the righteous branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is also polygamous and racist as well, branching away from the LDS when they began to ordain Black people. In order to even enter a temple, you need a special card called a recommend. These are issued by local church leaders, certifying that the person is spiritually prepared to enter. Once inside, you then have to immediately enter a changing room where you take off your clothes and put on a white gown. Everyone inside the temples are adorned in white. Temples are filled with special rooms. There's binding rooms where people are married, an endowment or learning room that leads into a celestial room, which is a place of quiet peace and prayer. Some temples have a creation room representing Genesis and a garden room representing Eden and a world room and a terrestrial room as well. For Lori, the temple is a place where she can pass through the veil of firmament and enter the highest heaven, the place where God dwells, the celestial realm. And here she's instructed on spiritual matters. She says, quote, the Church of Latter-day Saints is just a gateway to get you to the temple so that the Lord can teach you himself, end quote. She tells how she was in a ceiling room and a spirit sister came and kissed her on the cheek before disappearing through the wall. She says she hears voices of angels instructing her. She says she is in regular contact with the angel Moroni. That's the big Mormon angel, the guardian of the golden plates. He ministers her, and she claims to have lots of angelic ministry. And she says she doesn't sleep at all but stays up all night being given instructions by angels on, quote, things that I can do to help further the Father's work. Hmm. Interesting. Then God tells her to move to Hawaii. So they do. Lori gets what Lori wants. They move to Kauai, Hawaii in 2014. It's paradise, and the kids are loving it romping on the beach and splashing in the ocean. Everyone seems happy. But Lori is beginning to feel that Charles isn't her spiritual equal. 
he doesn't understand the deeper elements of her spirituality, and they just aren't on the same level. And for Lori, this is causing a strain in their relationship. Eventually, they move back to Arizona. Colby gets married. His wife says Lori was very passive-aggressive towards her, saying things like, well, Jesus may love you, but he loves me more. <laughs> Which, I don't know, it's not the most selfless of things to say. Then Lori meets Melanie Gibb, which is a huge turning point in her life when her budding fanaticism and religious fervor will explode. Lori meets Melanie Gibb in October 2018 at an LDS event where Melanie was teaching a class. Lori approached her after the class and chatted her up, being very interested in what she was teaching. The two become fast friends with deep spiritual beliefs. They start reading books about the final days and the second coming, and some of them were by an author named Chad Daybell, who had started a publishing company centered on books preparing for the end of the world. Melanie introduces Lori to Preparing a People. Preparing a People is an organization that says its mission is to, quote, help prepare the people of this earth for the second coming of Jesus Christ, end quote. On its website, the organization says it doesn't represent any church or official church doctrines, policies, or positions. However, just about everyone associated with preparing a people and those who speak at their workshops are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and most are in some way involved with so-called doomsday prepping, preparing for the end of the world both physically, by stockpiling foodstuffs, and spiritually. Preparing a People has an extensive website with a variety of message boards and organizes conferences in Idaho, Utah, and Arizona to hear speakers on a variety of religious topics. They also host a whole mess of crazy podcasts on everything from disaster preparedness to demonology, the rapture, Armageddon, and the second coming. Lori is sucked deep into all of this. Lori won't stop talking about the end of times and how terrifying it's going to be. She tells a friend she sometimes thinks of just driving her family off of a cliff instead of facing the upcoming Armageddon. Her brother Alex starts hanging around and they start listening to these crazy podcasts together. Lori and her new best friend, Melanie Gibb, start their own podcast called Feel the Fire and have author, publisher, and doomsday prepper Chad Daybell on their show. Preparing a people have taken down all the podcasts involving Lori and Chad, but you can find the original Feel the Fire podcast where they interview Chad on YouTube. I'll put a link in the show notes for the curious. It's really strange how he mumbles on about being able to see the future. He claims to have had two near-death experiences which prompt him to write his novels. He says he was standing on a cliff over the ocean. When a wave came and swept him away, he was knocked out of his body and saw his deceased grandfather, who showed him visions of the future. He talks about meeting and talking to Jesus. He said Jesus said people should not be so hard on themselves and that Jesus had long, dirty blonde hair and blue eyes and was clean-shaven. 
Yup, according to Chad Daybell, Jesus has no beard. <laughs> it all comes to a head when Lori goes to the Preparing a People conference in 2018, where Chad Daybell is one of the main speakers. After Chad speaks, Lori goes to his booth and talks to him. He immediately tells her they had been married multiple times in other lives. It, it's crazy. Right off the bat, this guy is claiming he had been named James and she had been named Elena when they were husband and wife in a previous incarnation. He tells her, a voice said to me, you will meet an extraordinary woman today who will change your life forever. And at some point, he even calls her a sexual goddess. And I think it's important that we point out that this guy, Chad, is married and has five children. Right? And uh, crazier still, this bold approach totally works. And while Lori was in many ways a gorgeous woman, she'd been in beauty pageants. Chad Daybell, on the other hand, is one weird looking guy. He's got no chin. He's just got this fat neck that rises up to his head making him look a lot like, well, like a frog. And this kind of dumpy, scrunched up face and these small eyes that are always darting around. Personally, <laughs> it's kind of the face you just want to fucking punch. So let's just get into this guy, Chad Daybell, real quick. <laughs> let's begin. Chad Guy Daybell was born August 11th, 1968 in Provo, Utah, and went to Brigham Young University, where he received a bachelor's degree in journalism. He married his wife, Tammy, in 1990. He worked as a grave digger before having a revelation from God that he should move to Rexburg, Idaho. In Idaho, he tapped into the prepper communities with his belief in a coming Armageddon. So... Mormons are taught that they should always have a supply of water, food, and cash on hand in case there's an emergency. It's really just about being prepared. I mean, they are a pioneer people. That's their heritage. But some take this to a whole new level and become what's known as preppers, spending crazy amounts of money on caches of foodstuffs and potable water. In Idaho, there were a lot of Mormon offshoot prepper groups, people who have become known as Latter-day Saint extremists. Chad would wander among them, explaining his personal revelations from God. He self-published a number of books and became so good at it that he started his own publishing company, the Spring Creek Book Company, publishing books by other people in these Mormon prepper offshoots. He becomes part of this weird underground network from podcasts to internet sites like Another Voice of Warning, where Mormon preppers spread their beliefs and messages about the coming Armageddon when the saved will live in cities of white tents. Ah, yes, the cities of white tents. Chad develops bizarre religious and spiritual beliefs. He claims he can see how many lives a person has had and has his own unique ranking system to judge them. He says people were literal light before they came to this planet in the pre-mortal realm, and those who made contracts with the Savior were light. Those who signed contracts with Satan were dark. 
get too dark and your soul will die and a demon will crawl into your body, making you a zombie. The Living Dead. And Chad claimed to know how many zombies were in each state. He had this whole complicated thing written out about zombies, demons, creatures of light and dark, what weapons you could use against them. It was sort of like a role-playing game manual based on the Bible. Chad believed Armageddon would start in July of 2020 and that it would be preceded by a series of devastating earthquakes. He believed 144,000 souls would be chosen to survive the apocalypse. Getting this number from revelations in the New Testament of the Bible, where it's mentioned several times. Yeah, and just to be clear, this number 144,000 is nothing new or original. It has been seized on by everyone from Charlie Manson to the Jehovah's Witnesses. In traditional Mormonism, it's just seen as the number of high priests that will administer the gospel. Chad says Rexburg, Idaho is the new Jerusalem. It will be shielded and literally invisible during the chaos of Armageddon. He claims his books are scripture and just as important as the Book of Mormon. Lori agrees. He tells her in a past life she was the grandmother of Mormon prophet Joseph Smith. So I've been doing some digging, trying to figure all this crazy shit out. Basically, Chad was trying to restart the Church of the Firstborn. The Church of the Firstborn was an early offshoot of Mormonism, started in 1857 by Joseph Morris, an English convert to the church. Joseph received revelations from God, naming him as the seventh angel from the book of Revelations, and wrote about them to Brigham Young, who was president and leader of the Mormons at that time, seeking recognition of his calling. But Brigham Young just completely ignored him and all his subsequent letters totally ghosted him. <laughs> Undaunted, in 1860, Morris began to collect followers to a group that became known as the Morrisites. But the church wasn't amused, and in February 1861, Morris was excommunicated from the LDS church. So on April 6, 1861, Morris and his followers organized the Church of the Firstborn and called all of his followers together at Kingston Fort, a three-acre fort on the Weber River, and by midsummer. 1861, the group had reached 300 followers. They were basically a doomsday cult, eagerly awaiting Armageddon. Joseph even told his followers not to plant crops in their fields because the second coming would be arriving soon. Some overzealous members even went into the fields and stomped on their crops to show how faithful they were. Obviously, the second coming didn't happen, and they started getting hungry. Joseph kept announcing new dates, and when, every time, nothing happened on those days, more people would abandon the cult. Then, some of those abandoning the group took a load of wheat with them, and this started a full-on war. Joseph captured the fleeing members and the wheat, and he jailed them, at which point the Utah militia came in, and Joseph, in the skirmish, ended up getting shot and killed. The other leaders were rounded up and sent to court and convicted of murder and resisting arrest. 
but they were all pardoned, and the remnants of the cult still carried on up into the 1960s when it was completely disbanded. But now, 60 years later, Chad Guy Daybell wanted to start his own version of the Church of the Newborn. Like the mainstream LDS, the Church of the Newborn believed Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. But what set them apart in their beliefs was reincarnation. They believed that reincarnation was actually taught by Joseph Smith and that most other LDS sects were in apostasy for rejecting those teachings. Each of the successive leaders of the church was believed to be the reincarnation of a significant prophet of old, with Joseph Smith being the reincarnation of the Apostle Paul and Joseph Morris the reincarnation of Moses. Reincarnation is not accepted by the LDS church. Basically, what traditional Mormons believe is that this life is a test or a probation to see if you will follow God's laws. But Chad believed in the Church of the Newborn's doctrine that there could be multiple probations or multiple lives on earth. He also believed he held the power to see those lives in both himself and in others. Another thing that Chad believed that was different from the church and definitely attracted Lori was the role of women in the second coming. In traditional LDS, only men can become ordained priests and ascend the church hierarchy. Women are not allowed. But Chad preached that not only could women be priests, but in his visions, he saw there were actually more women than men fighting in the coming holy war. And he assured Lori that on a spiritual level, she was a priest of the highest order, on a level higher than the Melchizedek priesthood itself. She was a literal goddess incarnate on earth. And you know, Lori, well, she just adored hearing that bullshit. After the event, Chad and Lori talk every single day, quickly moving the relationship to the next level. They start meeting in hotel rooms, having an affair. Chad is sending her texts like, I need so badly to kiss you for hours. It would likely lead to other activities. She says, Likely or luckily. <laughs> he says, It would luckily lead to nakedness. Ooh la la. <laughs> On July 26th, 2019, he sends her an ominous text reading, Every few weeks I get to escape and have amazing adventures with my goddess lover. But then I have to return to my place under the stairs, feeling trapped. But I sense permanent freedom is coming. And Lori's now best friend, Melanie, asks Lori why she doesn't just, you know, get a divorce and marry Chad if she's so in love. But Lori tells her they had a revelation from God that they weren't allowed to get divorced right now. Chad and Lori are getting all weird up in the temple where they secret themselves away in the ceiling room and conduct weird rituals, which is totally against church rules. They're married to other people, but they're in the temple quote-unquote, sealing themselves to each other, basically spiritually marrying each other. They say oh, it's perfectly fine, for they've been married 
many, many times before in past lives, a sentiment which goes directly against church doctrine. Chad tells Lori she will lead the 144,000 when society burns, that she has been on 21 planets and he on 31, that she is a warrior and her job is to rid the world of the demonic and evil forces in preparation for the coming Armageddon. And they start forming their own little cult. Lori's best friend, Melanie Gibb, is part of it, of course, as well as Lori's niece, another Melanie, and her husband, Brandon Boudreau. Melanie and Brandon Boudreau had long been close with the family, even staying with Lori and Charles for a while, and Melanie sinks deeper and deeper into their strange beliefs and past lives, Armageddon, the Second Coming, and their divine revelations. But her husband, Brandon, who is very active in the LDS church, shuns the group which causes a lot of tension. Lori and Chad start holding these casting ceremonies where members stand in a circle holding hands and cast out evil spirits. Zelma Pastines was a regular attendee. She says, quote, there are certain spirits that can only be cast out by prayer, end quote. Lori's brother Alex is a big part of the group and Chad tells him he is a warrior. And his sole purpose on earth is as a protector and defender of Lori. Alex, who'd already been arrested for defending Lori before, believes this wholeheartedly. Lori said she was able to cast Satan out by folding him up into the shape of a taco and locking him in a safe in Antarctica. And Chad, he builds a portal in Lori's closet so she can visit him and they can interact spiritually. Then Lori comes to believe that her husband Charles is actually already dead and there's a demon living in his body. She says she's just waiting for the demon inside him to die. And this demon's name is Ned Snyder. <laughs> Ned Snyder. It's such a weird name for a demon, isn't it? It's so dumb. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, Lori begins telling people without any proof at all that Charles has been cheating on her for years, going to California and seeing women and spending money on them. Charles says she's out of her mind. Lori tells him she's a superior being, a god sent to earth on a mission and knows things he doesn't. She says the world is going to end in July 2020, and it's her mission to gather the 144,000, and that if Charles gets in her way, she will kill him. Red flag. <laughs> At the end of January 2019, Charles went to Houston on a business trip, and Lori has a revelation from God that he is going to die there. So she cancels his flight back and has Alex take his truck from the airport. She takes all his clothes, all his belongings from the house, and empties their bank account. Charles finally makes it home, and they're gone. All the kids, Lori, just gone. She even took the dog. He calls the police, tells them that she had threatened to murder him, that she thinks she's a goddess, and he's a demon. Uh, the cops seem bored, but they help him break into the house. The next day... Charles stakes out J.J.'s school. 
And when Lori arrives to drop him off, he confronts her, demanding she return his truck and all his other possessions. She takes off, but he manages to grab her purse. So then Lori, Tylee, and Melanie Gibb go to the police and make a statement. Lori tells them that Charles had been cheating on her, and she confronted him on the phone about it, and they got into a huge fight. So as payback for being unfaithful, she took all his stuff, including his truck, and knowing he was going to be angry, took the kids and got a hotel room. Lori is very flirtatious with the police and charms the living hell out of them, saying she needs her purse because she needs her lip gloss. There's footage out there. You can watch it. She's just a master manipulator. And the cops, they don't seem to care at all that she stole all of his belongings. But they immediately contact him and tell him he has to return the purse. I guess, you know, seeing that lip gloss on Lori was more important than Charles's truck. They tell her that he's coming to give her the purse, but under the condition that she get a psych evaluation at the mental hospital. But the cops... They straight up tell her, if you don't want to go to the mental hospital, just ignore the cops who will come knocking at your door later to take you away. They tell her if she just ignores them, they'll go away. But she does end up voluntarily going to the psych evaluation and she checks out as completely sane and reasonable. But of course, Lori is a master manipulator. Nice. So then Charles finds all these fake emails. Lori is sending Chad under Charles' name, asking him to ghostwrite a book about baseball for him. Charles figures out she's doing this so they can communicate and Chad's wife won't get suspicious, especially when Chad goes to Arizona to visit Lori. Charles obviously concludes they're having an affair and that they're also dangerously delusional. He's also discovered Chad's lists of people who were either light or dark. Obviously, he was dark, but frighteningly, so was Lori's daughter, Tylee, as well. He tells all of this to everyone and anyone, including Chad's wife. But no one listens, especially since Lori had already messaged everyone telling them to ignore Charles' emails, saying he was the crazy one. No one listens. That is, except Lori's older brother, Adam. Just to be clear, not Alex, who is now her sworn defender, but the eldest brother, Adam. And Adam is the only one who will talk with Charles. And he agrees with him that things aren't right, especially after seeing Chad's chilling and insane writings on zombie people, demons, and the coming Armageddon. Lori won't take Adam's phone calls. So Adam flies to Arizona to try to get the family together to talk things over with Lori. But when he gets there, he can't get in touch with Alex, who was supposed to pick him up. Bad, bad idea to even let Alex in on any of it, much less rely on him for a ride. Meanwhile, now Lori is on to the whole intervention scheme and is texting with Alex about Ned, which they consider to be the demon living inside of Charles. And when Charles goes to Lori's house to pick up JJ to take him to school, Alex is there. Surprise, surprise. Not at the airport where he's supposed to be picking up his brother, Adam. What happens next, we don't know for certain. Alex claims Charles came in and started acting aggressively towards Lori. 
and Tylee came out of her room with a baseball bat to defend her mother, at which point Charles pulled the bat from her and attacked Alex with it. And in self-defense, Alex shot him twice. While Alex is calling 911, Lori loads Tylee and JJ into Charles's rental car. She's like, what the fuck? She's leaving a crime scene in the murder victim's car. It's, it's nuts if you think about it. Right? I mean, Lori takes JJ to Burger King, then school. Then she goes out and buys herself and Tylee flip-flops. And then finally returns to the crime scene, which, of course, is now swarming with cops. She again charms the hell out of the cops, laughing and telling little jokes. And the cops are all laughing back. It's totally inappropriate. She doesn't even ask if Charles is okay, whether he's alive or not. She's just sitting there smiling. It's all on body cam footage you can watch. And the cops, they buy the self-defense thing and just let Alex go. Seriously, what the fuck? It's maddening. Later, investigators would discover Alex waited nearly an hour before calling 911 and hadn't performed CPR like he said he had. Most importantly, an autopsy shows he was shot the second time while lying on the ground. That shot was hardly self-defense. Right. Lori calls her eldest child, Colby, and tells him that Charles had a heart attack. (laughs) What the fuck? Lori then texts Charles's sons from his previous marriage, saying she had sad news. Their father had passed away, but she'll keep them informed and she loves them. That's it. Just this simple text. And they're obviously freaking out. They start calling and texting and she doesn't answer. Finally, she texts them back that she's waiting to hear from the medical examiner. And most bizarrely, She tells JJ's school that Charles committed suicide. It's like she's incapable of honesty. Yeah, seriously, that is very much what it seems like. Not long after, money obviously on her mind, Lori calls the life insurance company to try to cash in on Charles' $1 million policy, only to find out she's not the beneficiary anymore. Charles had switched it to his sister, unbeknownst to her. Ha ha ha. She must have been so fucking pissed, man, because she loves money. She tells Chad not getting the money is like a spear through her heart. Oh, poor Lori. She sends truly bizarre texts to Chad about it, saying, I talked to the insurance company. He changed it in March. So it was probably Ned before we got rid of him but I'll still get the $4,000 a month from Social Security. (laughs) It was probably Ned. And she's calling her dead husband it. And he writes back, quote, I love you. This is terrible, but it is probably another step in bringing down the Gadiantons, especially Brandon, end quote. Gadiantans, according to the Book of Mormon, were a secret criminal organization in ancient America. But it's especially spooky as he'd included Melanie's husband, Brandon, in this. You remember Brandon, the LDS stalwart who refused to join their weird cult. 
Well, at this point, Melanie had left him and just gone completely off the deep end in her beliefs on the coming Armageddon and zombie people and, of course, the demon infestation. Then Lori, JJ, Tylee, Alex, and Melanie all leave Arizona and move to Rexburg, Idaho, the new Jerusalem, to be closer to Chad. Chad is still working away on his list of everyone they know, judging them, either light or dark, on a scale of one to six. And it can change at any moment. So, you know, he has to keep up with this. Lori is now a 4.3 light. Alex, he's only a two light, which is really sad considering all he's done for this cause, including murder. (laughs) Remember, if you're dark, your spirit has left your body and you're a zombie now. The only way to free the spirit is to kill the body. Chad said there were 20,000 zombies in the world and they all needed to be eradicated. Most disturbingly, Tylee is on the dark scale now, and they claim Tylee's body has been taken over by a demon named Hillary. These demon names, man. (laughs) For a writer, he's not that imaginative. Yeah. On September 8th, 2019, the last known pictures of Tylee are taken. They're in Yellowstone National Park with Lori and Alex. She's grinning happily, eyes aglow, a beautiful and Rubenesque 17-year-old girl hugging her seven-year-old brother, JJ. And on September 22nd, 2019, the last known photo of JJ is taken. He's wearing red pajamas and grinning happily. Melanie Gibb is there, visiting with her boyfriend, doing a podcast with Lori. She asks where Tylee is, and Lori tells her she's enrolled in college and is living an independent life. At one point, Chad takes them out to see a, quote, spiritual building. But only Lori can see this building. Melanie and her boyfriend, they don't see anything at all. (laughs) This has to be one strange scene. Melanie sees Alex take JJ upstairs to his room and never sees him again. Lori tells her JJ has been acting like a zombie, crawling up on the counters and onto the refrigerator in a fit, screaming, I love Satan. Melanie Gibb, who actually introduced Lori to all this craziness to begin with, starts feeling weird and having her doubts about the cult and returns to Arizona with her boyfriend. Then Lori receives an alarming text from Chad about his wife, who incidentally has now become sure that Chad is having an affair. The text reads, quote, the short version is that she has been switched. Tammy is in limbo and a level three demonic entity named Viola is in her body. It happened at about 10 p.m. I like how he's like so specific about the time and what demon level she is. And Viola, these names just come to him. You know, it'd be funny if it wasn't so damn tragic. It's still funny. Yeah, it's it's absurd is what it is. Yes. And Chad begins to tell people Tammy isn't going to be around much longer. That he was destined to have a life before Tammy and a life after Tammy. 
which ends up being very true, just not in the way he was expecting. On October 2nd, 2019, Brandon Bedreau wakes up, takes two of his kids to school, then drops the other two off at a custody drop where his now ex-wife Melanie takes them. He goes to the gym and returns home at about 9.30 a.m. And as he's getting out of the car, a shot rings out. A bullet whizzes by, missing his head by just inches, slamming into his car windshield and shattering it. He catches a glimpse of the vehicle as it speeds away. It's a green Jeep Wrangler registered to Lori's dead husband, Charles Vallow. This is later confirmed by CCTV footage, and Brandon says the shooter looked a lot like Alex Cox. Brandon takes his four kids and goes into hiding. Smart move. Then there's another shooting incident. A gunman fires at Chad's wife, Tammy, as she's exiting her car. She seems to think it's a paintball gun for some reason or another, though there was no evidence of that. She rushes inside and tells Chad, who goes to the backyard and is able to make contact with the shooter and talk to him calmly. Fucking hell, man. All this is so weird. So, like, after someone fires at your wife, you're just going to calmly talk to this guy? (laughs) Right. Uh, And then Tammy goes and writes a lengthy post on Facebook about the event. And then just days later, on October 19th, 2019, Tammy mysteriously dies. The coroner rules it to be natural causes. And Chad, of course, declines an autopsy. And just a week later, Chad is happily telling neighbors he's doing great and going to get married. His neighbors are shocked. Later, Chad introduces them to his fiance Lori. The two are giggling and hugging, holding hands, acting like teenagers in love. Then Chad tells the neighbors that Lori had recently lost a daughter. Not the savviest of criminal minds here, especially since Lori is telling everyone, including her sister, that the kids are just fine. And at this point, no one has seen Tylee or JJ in months, which is becoming very worrying. Lori's parents actually put out a $20,000 reward. JJ's grandmother, Kay Woodcock, asked the police to conduct a welfare check and Rexburg police go to Lori's house and make contact with her, asking her about JJ. She says JJ is fine and with her friend Melanie in Arizona. While at the same time, Chad is frantically calling Melanie and telling her the cops are going to call her and do not answer the phone. Then Lori calls Melanie and asks her to lie to the cops, tell them JJ is there with her. She even asks her to go take photographs of some random kid and send them to the cops saying it's JJ. But this is a line Melanie is not going to cross. Lori and Chad have gone too far. Melanie may have been part of their cult in the beginning. She was Lori's podcast co-host and basically introduced Chad and Lori, but she's not going to lie to the cops and send them fraudulent photos. Instead, she calls Lori back and records the conversation. This entire very long conversation was played in whole in court, and you can go on YouTube and listen to it. It's very scary, if not straight up terrifying. Melanie tells Lori 
that if they were really friends, she wouldn't have told the cops JJ was with her and asks where the children are. Lori says JJ is safe and happy, but she can't say where he is. You know, secret Mormon cult stuff. And Chad tells Melanie if she were to know, it would put her in danger. The conversation turns dark, and Lori basically accuses her friend of being in league with the devil and going dark. Remember, Lori's sole purpose on Earth is to rid it of the dark ones. Melanie gives the recording to the cops. Now the search for the kids goes into full drive. There's billboards, it's on the national news, everyone is talking about it. Reddit subgroups are popping up, everyone's searching for these two cherubic blonde kids. Chad Daybell's own children said they never even knew their stepmother had kids. And the cops raid Lori's house. It's empty. Nothing and no one there. And no one's there because Chad had collected the $500,000 life insurance payment for his dead wife. And he and Lori have snuck off to Hawaii to get married, not telling a single soul they were leaving. And Lori, she doesn't worry how any of this is going to look because Chad had assured her soon devastating earthquakes were going to destroy half of Idaho and there'd be too much devastation going on for their trip to raise any eyebrows. And on November 5th, 2019, Chad Daybell and Lori are pronounced man and wife in a private beach front ceremony on the island of Kauai. The photos of them on the beach are infuriating. They're all in white. He's pretending to play the ukulele while she dances about. Ugh, his smug, stupid face. It's terrible. And knowing they're there on insurance money he got after murdering his wife. And to top it off, the weird Malachite wedding rings? They bought them from Amazon with Charles Vallow's credit card. Yeah, they used her dead husband's credit cards to buy their wedding rings. Wow. But they're not the only ones getting married. Melanie meets this guy, Ian Polowski, in Las Vegas in November. And they must have hit it off because 10 days later, they were married. But first, Ian had to personally ask Chad and Lori for their blessing and permission. The wedding was witnessed and overseen by a grinning Alex. This guy, Ian, just marries himself into these weirdos. I don't get it. No red flags there. The FBI at one point even contact him and ask him to start taping his phone calls with Lori and Chad which he does. And there's another marriage on December 1st because Chad had a vision from God that Alex and Zalima should get married. So they did. On December 11th, investigators exhumed Tammy's body. They find bruising on her and determine she's died of asphyxiation, which means she was most likely held down and suffocated. It looks like the rope is tightening on Lori and Chad. Then the weirdest thing happens. The very next day, December 12th, Alex, who had actually now been cut off from Lori and Chad, he dies of blood clots in his lungs. It's determined to be completely natural, but it's just so weird and crazy. I mean, what are the odds? Such a crazy coincidence. 
for the record, I don't believe it was a coincidence. I looked into it. There's no way to cause lung, blood clots in someone's lungs. It's, I don't know, man. I maybe, still don't buy it. Maybe it was one of the demons. Maybe they, they <laughs> it was supernatural. Like, I mean, if you even if you can't cause blood clots, like, can you do something else? I don't know. It's just I mean, they I really know. investigated. They, you know, they looked into it as hard. Hmm. On January 25th, 2020, the cops finally track Lori and Chad down in Hawaii. They serve a search warrant for her car. She shrugs, smirks, and doesn't say a word. They find a credit card made out in Tylee's name, both Tylee and JJ's social security cards, and 14 copies of Charles Vallow's death certificate. News reporters swarm on them, asking where the kids are. It's been four months at this point. Lori and Chad just ignore them. The cops serve Lori with an order requiring she produce her children. And on February 20th, 2020, while Lori sits beside a pool in her bikini, presumably waiting for the news on the Idaho earthquakes, which would mark the beginning of the apocalypse, authorities come and arrest her for a child endangerment warrant from Idaho and extradite her back to Idaho. So Lori is in jail in Idaho, refusing to say where the children are, just saying they're safe and Chad's there at her arraignment like the loyal husband and cosmic soulmate and celestial zombie fighting warrior he is. But suspicion of him is very, very high at this point. The cops have Alex's phone and they can see that he was at Chad's house in September, right when the kids went missing. Using satellites, they can see that Alex was in two distinct spots in Chad's backyard for many, many hours. They also have Tammy's phone, and they discover that just 15 minutes after Alex left Chad's house, Chad sends a text message to Tammy saying he'd killed a raccoon and buried it in their pet cemetery, which seems to me to say, don't be alarmed. If you see a grave. So creepy, so awful, just so fucked. Right. And this is something that I personally noticed. The date was 9-9-19. Like 666 upside down. It's weird. These guys are all into weird numerology and crazy mumbo jumbo. Makes me think maybe they had chosen that date. I don't know. Meanwhile... They stick Lori in a mental asylum, where she belongs, in my opinion, right. for a 90-day psych evaluation. And on June 9th, 2020, law enforcement serves a search warrant on Chad's residence and immediately begins searching his large property, going right to those spots that Alex had been in. Chad's there. He's just sitting, watching while they set up tents, begin to dig. And who should call him on the phone from jail but Lori? So coming from jail, of course, the conversation is recorded. It is just fucking epically pathetic and sad. He's such a whiny little douchebag. He's like, the police are here. They're searching. She's all calm and, you know, the warrior woman. She's like, where? And he tells her they're digging 
in the pet cemetery. And she weirdly and confidently asks him what she can do for him. What the fuck is she going to do? She's in jail. Like some magic stuff stopped him with her goddess mind powers. She tells him she loves him. And he he hops in his car and takes off as fast as he can. <laughs> Ugh, so pathetic, like you said. The cops are all over him in a second, swooping in and picking him up. And investigators are digging in the pet cemetery. They find a dog, a cat, no raccoon. They find a partially melted bucket, and below that, a partial human skull. It was 17-year-old Tylee. Her body had been burned beyond recognition and was gruesomely dismembered. The corpse was in such a horrible state that the medical examiner wouldn't even be able to determine the cause of death, though marks on her pelvis showed she was stabbed. Another team of investigators find a four-foot by a two-foot patch of grass much shorter than the rest, right where Alex had been for four hours, and begin to remove the sod. They find three white flat rocks, and below them find wooden paneling. Removing the paneling, they discover two layers of plastic. Beneath this, they find a small body wrapped in black plastic and duct tape. It's J.J., still in the red pajamas from the last photograph known of him. His arms and legs are bound with duct tape. A plastic bag had been put over his head and wrapped tight in duct tape from his chin to the top of his head. The medical examiner would rule that this is how he died, from asphyxiation. It's fucking so hardcore, man. This poor little kid. They put a bag over his head and wrapped it up in duct tape. These pieces of shit. What a horrific, terrible death. It, it just hurts my heart. He's such a cute little kid. And his own uncle that he loved and trusted did this to him. And why? Because this douchebag bumbling moron says the little kid had a demon in him? That he was a zombie? What the fuck? It's, it's hard to fathom. And this woman who was supposedly his mother, if not a mother figure, his adopted mother, just lets it all happen as well. She probably was all about it. Mm. Zalima later testifies that during a casting session, once the demon is free from the person, there's a two minute interval when another demon can enter. And the only way to stop it is to either burn or bind the body. Tylee was burned. JJ was bound. Uh, So it appears they were probably murdered during one of these weird casting rituals they had. Relatives also say that because of JJ's autism, if he got something in his head, he would repeat it over and over, obsessing on it. And there's speculation that he may have seen or heard something to do with Tylee's murder and started repeating it which is the real reason they killed him. Tylee, she was his protector. They had a very special bond. She referred to him as her own child. So having her gone must have been an enormous thing for him, especially with his autism. 
Alex's fingerprints are found on the black plastic in the grave, and a strand of Lori's hair is found in the duct tape wrapped around the bag on JJ's head. Ugh. People also say Tylee had inherited some money and was receiving social security payments, and Lori wanted that money. JJ, too, was getting payments. It seems like anyone who had money was a demon, including Lori's own daughter. Lori Vallow's murder trial began on April 3rd, 2023. The prosecution presented 60 witnesses over four weeks of testimony. The defense didn't call a single witness and tried to argue Lori wasn't in Idaho those terrible days in September 2019. On May 11th, 2023, closing arguments were made. Jurors deliberate two days, find her guilty on all charges. Lori, in a black dress, stood emotionless as the verdict was read. And on July 31st, 2023, Lori Vallow received three life sentences without the chance of parole for the murder of her children and conspiracy to kill Tammy Daybell. Chad Daybell awaits trial at this time. Oh, wow. What what a crazy case. So obviously these people's beliefs were really out there. Now, Aaron, you were actually part of a religious cult. Uh, can you tell us some of what it is that allows the human mind to accept things that so many would find crazy? I mean, is it like brainwashing or is it faith? <sighs> There's so many layers in that question, Matt. Like, you know, it's for well, in the case of Lori, what it seems is it played on a lot of her need to be in the spotlight, a lot of her need to be the center of attention. And we see that even early on in the story where she gets on uh, Wheel of Fortune and she goes and does pageants as an adult which nothing wrong with doing that but it's a fine line between competing just simply to be in that spotlight and when she met Chad Daybell um who was an author you know and was getting on podcasts and interviews in his own right and trying to form this um or reform this former cult um where she could almost just get in as this leader and he knows how to speak to her, to lure her in and to play on that need to be the center of attention and to have that ego. Other times it can be simply through finding people who are isolated, who want to be a part of something. And it doesn't have to be something mainstream, but just to have that family or that mm. feel of family that they never had. And um, the second part about brainwashing or faith, I, I think it's a little of both. You know, I think that um, even people who are looking for, you know, some type of acceptance and some kind of type of family. And when we look at, you know, just faith as a general term, um, they, they want to have faith in something. If they don't already have roots in some type of 
religious background, whether that be Christianity or Buddhism or spiritualism or, or whatever that may be, um, you know, that idea that there's something more can lure people in and then just have sort of let the brainwashing do the rest. Yeah, I talked to a lot of people in the true crime community who believe that they didn't believe in any of it. They, they think that they were just like making it up as a f- way of murdering people for money. And, but I don't th- I feel like that they really believed it. I think that they were hook, line and sinker into this crazy shit. It's hard to I, I think it's almost a little bit of both. I, I think that um, I think it's one of those um, ideas where. It starts out and you're getting fed this power bit by bit and you know you've got Lori who says you know I'm not sleeping at night who she admits herself I'm not sleeping at night and it's almost I'm trying to figure out a good way to kind of communicate what I'm thinking here they want to believe it it comes to a point where the acts go so far and you're talking about murder and you're talking about even manipulation of another human being you know using manipulation and control and these tactics the mind almost it's like the mind will almost quote unquote protect itself from this by saying okay I am so committed into this that I am doing things way against human moral nature i have to believe it at this point mm-hmm. like even if maybe yeah. a part of me is like oh okay i'm talking can can sit back and reason okay we're talking about what was it ned snyder and <laughs> and 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 demons and and this D type of mentality of these casting ceremonies you know and logically i can a part of me albeit small can say in what world does this make sense? I have to believe it now. I've committed murders. I have taken by manipulation people's, you know, minds and brainwashed them. So to protect myself mentally, I'm going to have this psychotic break between reality and this asinine world that I have now created. And I don't have a choice. I'm curious too, like, because to me, the fact that one of the people that she murdered was her own daughter means that like, I don't know, like I can't wrap my head around there not being something wrong with her before all of the beliefs were presented to her because I, I can't wrap my head around any mother like being told something that they're going to believe so half heart so wholeheartedly that they're then going to hurt their child, their children. And I was thinking back to like the part of our podcast when we were talking about how she heard voices, she heard angels, she was up all night. I mean, those are like very manic or manic depressive symptoms. Was there ever, I mean, I know she was found, you know, able to stand trial. She did not, you know, go the insanity route. Was there any Well, they made her take a psych evaluation even before that, right? Yeah, but, but. It was in the same community where the police are like, well, if you just ignore them, they'll go away. So I, know, I wonder right? <laughs> how like tapped into like reasonable and 
productive mental health services their community really was. I can agree. And I, we see the decline too, as I mean, in the beginning of our story in um, where she found out that um, her son was being abused right? and she left immediately. She said no, which in a lot of cases um, it's very hard for women to get out. And she had the support system and mm-hmm. the resources to get her kids and herself out of that situation and it's interesting to see how it goes from that to now my kids have demons and yeah it's a good point it's like how so did it many go people so commented that she was such a good mother right and 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 you know i mean i you know it takes a lot of strength to leave a marriage like that even you know we see a lot of times when kids come to their moms or dads, whomever, and says, you know, I'm being abused, you know, and then um, sometimes the parents will make excuses or, you know, don't have the resources to get out in all fairness and end up staying. And, you know, she got him out and it, that takes a lot of strength. That takes a lot to, you know, do that. And so, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting to see how that so rapidly declined I mean, you know, Matt, not to like shit on what you just said, but you got me thinking when you said so many people said she was such a good mother. I, because I, you know, like true crime and read a lot of horror and just a lot, I've always, I guess at this point in my life, I don't, I don't buy those statements anymore. Cause like, think of every single serial kit, like, Ted Bundy, the leading true crime writer of our time was like, he was such, you know, he was so great at his suicide, you know, prevention hotline job. Like we're all so able to fool other people. Like how hard would it have been for her to fool people into thinking she was a good mother? Um, The mask. Right. Like maybe she was never a good mother. And I don't know. I mean, she didn't really have any husband that she was married to long enough to like, I, right. I don't know, maybe nobody ever, I'm interested too, to know, were there any reports from her children? Like it's, maybe it's a little concerning that, well, not, obviously it's a little concerning that Kylie thought she had to be the mother to JJ. Why did she feel like she had to step into that role even before all of the crazy doomsday shit happened? Like, was she filling in because her mother was never a good mother figure and she knew it. Well, the reports say that she was really into like autism awareness and like took on that role as an, as the mom of an autistic kid. But you can see that as a narcissistic personality in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like she was, she became so obsessed with so much shit. Like, you know, eventually she became obsessed with this crazy cult and podcasts and that, and put all her energy into that. Yeah. So at the time, maybe it was just like, a new hobby. She was like focusing on, Oh, I'm the mother of an autistic child. And, and what does that entail? And just like completely devoting herself to it, not out of love for the kid itself, but almost out of a selfish means of getting attention and uh, presenting herself as this great mother and people saying, Oh, you're such a good mother. She probably relished that. Yeah. And I guess I I should clarify too. Sorry. I don't want to interrupt you. Go ahead. You're, Oh, go ahead. You're fine. I was just going to say, I should clarify too. Like 
I, I walk a fine line between like, I don't assume that everyone is awful. I guess I should say more <laughs> that like, I'm not surprised anymore. That's probably the best way to put it. Like, even though I've never had anything like personally where like somebody in my life has been awful, like at this point, consuming true crime and regular news stories, it's like, I'm never surprised anymore when somebody's like, oh my God, they seemed so wonderful. And it's like, what at this point, how are you surprised? Because everybody that ever turns <laughs> out to be a horrific person, like has people in their life that are shocked. So. I and know. I agree with that. Um, and it seems like uh, just going back to the point Matt was making about attention is Lori did at the time whatever Lori thought would benefit Lori. Right. And so if, you know, like you were saying, Matt, if Lori, if autism awareness got Lori into the spotlight, then that's what did. And at the time, and as sick as this is, and as much as we here can't fathom it, murdering Tylee and JJ benefited Lori. And, you know, Lori saying, I mean, we, and we see that in the demons, everybody had a demon and, you know, Chad had to keep up with all these demons and who was light and who was dark. And usually it was people, Oh, if you make me mad, Oh, wow, God, you have a demon. Um, and it was a lot of, well, this is what benefits Lori at the time in Lori's mind. And in a lot of cults, we see that, um, the one that I was, I guess you would say in, they they had a huge focus on rehabilitating quote unquote troubled teens and they would have girls homes and they would have boys homes and this quote unquote troubled aspect was what in their minds gave them the right to then in my opinion um abuse a lot of these kids that were in these homes and um, it seemed to me, and I was not, I guess, there a lot. I would, I had like firsthand, um, witnessed, um, a girl's home and a boy's home. And I can't speak too specifically because at least one of them, there's an upcoming huge court case regarding, but you would see instances where, the girls would be quote unquote rebellious, um, which was a very common term. If it would suit them to say, punish them, say, put them on what's called, put them on the wall, which was um, where the girls would have to stand facing the wall. And that could be all day. That could be, that would be through mealtime. That could be through, whatever they were doing, you stood there and you just literally would face a wall all day long. Um, and, and it was sort of what it seemed to be a lot of what suited the needs of those who were running it. Uh, so it's like a form of compliance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is weird, but uh, when William Bonin was in the, that orphanage, they did that exact same thing to him. They'd make him stand there till, the, till they couldn't stand anymore. Yeah. Like, and, you know, and there was 
locked, limited access to food and because we don't want to be gluttonous. We don't want to promote gluttony. And there was um, copying the Bible, just pages and pages. And they would hide behind that these girls were, quote unquote, troubled. Um, You know, maybe they were about to get in a gang. I mean, it would range from everything from, you know, maybe they were part of a gang to maybe they were just back talking their parents at home and all anybody outside of that home. Like I questioned it multiple times and I was just told, no, no, no. These girls were like, you know, basically just like on drugs and in gangs and, you know, running around with knives and murdering people, which I, which later you would find out was absolutely not the case. Maybe they back talked mom and dad a couple of times. And their communicate and the problem would be their communication would just be cut off from their family. They would have to earn that. But again, that's going to be at the will of who's leading that. So it could be limited to absolutely nothing. It seems that um, most cults se- segregate you from your family, segregate you, like they cut off communication. That seems like a major thing. Yeah. Absolutely. They they'll communicate, they'll cut off communication um, or sometimes like what you'll see is that the belief system themselves of the cult is so bizarre and so out there that the family and friends will just alienate themselves. Like I Mm -hmm. this is weird. Obviously, we can't talk you out of it. Um, You know, there could be threats made. You know, there was some instances of that between my family and this happening. Um, Some threats were made. um, And it's and and once you it's weird, sometimes um, you won't necessarily realize you're even getting on any level involved in this until you're there. And then it's like, I want to get out. And it's almost and, you know, of course, then it's almost impossible they'll have their own tactic tactics for that and as we see in Lori's in the case we just discussed i mean people were winding up dead and that's uh that that's a very real reality when they when they will threaten that maybe not saying that you know they're not joking around you know, it's you said something really interesting just now that like you usually don't know you're in a cult until you're in it and it's too late. It kind of doesn't seem that way with Lori. It kind of seemed like she was she knew it. She was pursuing it and she was relishing it like the steps leading her to where she got. I mean, she was like, you know, doing the podcast, like trying to kind of form these meetings herself and seeking out the people that were you know responsible for the movement. So it makes her an even scarier figure that she's just like kind of like not a normal human, which yeah, I think we I can think she'd been prepped on. for it. I mean, her dad was yeah. like all crazy weird. Yeah. And, uh, like yeah. religion in general, like pre- prepares you to be kind of brainwashed. And I mean, I hate to say this, but Mormonism is like really extreme. Like, you know, and they, they're taught to believe in divine revelation. And uh, yeah, true. it's just like open to like having a strange cause and and there's people who still believe everything that they believe that are still doing their podcasts that are still writing books that are still out there right now this second terrifying oh, well uh on that note i guess that's going to do it for today 
Dear listeners and fellow freaks, thanks so much. And thanks so much to Aaron Crocker for coming by and telling us some of his experiences. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, we'll put uh, some of Aaron's info out there in the show notes so you can check out some of his books and uh, films and stuff. And uh, hey there, listeners. You know, we want to hear from you as always. Got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? You just want to say hi? Always here. Shoot us an email at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. And we will see you next week. Bye.